Christ this <clears throat> Memorial Day weekend, um, remembering, and it's good that our nation chooses to do this. I know that just by human nature, we are forgetful people. And very significantly, just after the Civil War, that this day was called as a holiday, uh, not for barbecues, although we do, but for a day set aside to remember so many who have gone before us, um, lost their lives defending this nation. It's a privilege that we can even be here and stand here, sit here today uh, to be able to worship in this place because of that. And so it's good to be able to uh, remember that this day and this weekend. A number of years ago, <clears throat> Anita and I had the, the, have had the opportunity in the past of teaching a class here and other places on financial management in the home, dealing with personal finances. And we stretched that into a class where we would do different exercises. We also concentrated on the stewardship aspect as well as the hands-on, here's how to do it. And some really interesting things that we would discover as different families would come through and, and struggling with their budgets and how do I stretch out what I already have and how can I possibly do this? And it is, it's a challenge, it remains a challenge um, to many of us. And to hear some, to hear some stories and different people will come up with different versions of what they would call extravagance. Uh, some would say, you know, I, I need this home. I know I can't quite afford $2,300 a month in mortgage, but you don't understand, I need this home. Others wouldn't be quite so extravagant. <clears throat> they would say, you know, I, I, I need the third car, and, and it's just a beater, so it's okay, not realizing how much money that would suck out of their, their monthly budget just to keep the thing rolling. Um, and some, they wouldn't say that's not really extravagant. Others would look at extravagance as going to this grocery store and buying something that was name brand instead of store brand. That would be extravagant. So it was really interesting to see this. And, and admittedly, it is a challenge in attempting to budget what little we have. See, everybody only is given a certain amount. And we have to budget whatever it is. And sometimes it involves our time as well. I don't know if you've ever done that, because every one of us are given 24 hours a day, no more, no less. And we have to budget that in a way. We also have to budget our, our energy. You're only given so much physical stamina, uh, emotional strength. You're only given so much you have to, in a way, budget that. We're going to find something today from Scripture from God, that he does not expect us to budget. Oh, that sounds good. We like that, don't we? Strangely, it's something that God desires from us, and he doesn't expect us to budget it in any way. We're also going to look and explore the possibility that God is more interested in why we do something over what we do goes to our motives. Does God care about our motives? <clears throat> Does it matter? Last week we heard about a silent witness. We've been calling witnesses 
from the book of John. And as we have this set up here, we are calling witnesses before the judge. The witness is testifying to Jesus and the fact that he is the Messiah. And Ralph told us about a silent witness last week from John chapter 11. Lazarus never said a word. He was the silent witness. We're going to encounter him today, but we're going to focus on a different person. In fact, here's the letdown. In today's story, there's no miracle. There's no drama, no car chases, no one leaping out of buildings, nothing like that. It's just a simple occasion, something that happened, and then a short conversation. But there's a lot to learn from that brief passage. We're going to look at that, John chapter 12. If you turn there in your Bibles... We'll be looking at John chapter 12, the story of Mary. Now, this same story was also related by Matthew and by Mark. Matthew puts it in Matthew chapter 26, and then it's also found in Mark chapter 14. There is a similar story, if I could just do this parenthesis for a moment. There's a similar story in Luke chapter 7. Not the same person. In Luke chapter 7, there's a woman who comes and anoints Jesus, much as what we read from John 12. But it's a different woman, it's a different place, it's a different time, uh, a different area of the country. So it's very close, but it's not the same story in Luke chapter 7. Now remember the context. John chapter 11, Lazarus had just been raised from the dead. And we know from the end of chapter 11 that Jesus withdrew after this very significant event. See, for three years, he had been teaching and preaching and doing miracles. It started with John chapter 2 and the miracle at Cana, turning the water into wine. He only had four disciples along with him at that point, and very few people knew about that. But now, I mean, for for one thing, he fed 5,000 plus people, if you remember that story, and worked that miracle, many other things that he's done. And then here, he actually raised a person from the dead. So this is his, his uh, reputation, and people are hearing about him. It's growing. And for that reason, the Jewish leaders especially were not happy about this. He, for one thing, claimed God was his father. That was blasphemy. For the Jewish, for the Judaism, that was blasphemy. He claimed God with his father. He was teaching, or seemed to be teaching a religion contrary to traditional Judaism. And he was, in, he was influencing, if not hundreds, thousands of people in that same vein of thought. He would now lead, um, which would lead to undue attention from the Roman authorities. See, the Jews were under the control of the Romans. If anything, they did not want the Romans coming in and saying enough. The Jews wanted to do their own thing. On top of that, here's another reason why the Jewish leaders were upset. He was often calling them out on their own hypocrisy. So for this reason, there's a price on his head. He's in the ten most wanted, probably the first one. They said, take him out now. So, after raising Lazarus from the dead... Jesus and his disciples withdraw. You find out at the end of chapter 11, they went to a small town in the edge of the wilderness called Ephraim. And they spent time there. We don't know how long, but we know that in his sovereignty, Jesus knew exactly when to reappear. And so he shows up in public next in the same village where he had raised Lazarus from the dead. Here's where we arrive at chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover... Jesus therefore came to Bethany, 
where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now, this was probably the Saturday of what we call Passion Week. Passion Week is the week, of, the, the week leading up to Easter Sunday. So this was the Saturday before, probably, um, all of those events took place because the next day, John says, is when Jesus entered Jerusalem, um, uh, what we call Palm Sunday. So this was the day before that. And John inserts a small word here. We can't just pass over this one, okay? It's not just a filler word. It's the word therefore. It's a very small word in the Greek language, but it's significant. It not only ties this narrative to the previous one, but it also indicates intentional movement. God is orchestrating events. Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany. There's, in other words, there's a reason for that. God is moving things along, and it's God's hand that's doing it. His sovereignty <clears throat> is becoming evident, as is Jesus' obedience. You'll see the word pop up again a few verses later. Now, with the Jewish leaders, there's a sense of urgency. See, Passover brought thousands of people to Jerusalem. So perhaps they speculated that Jesus would be around with his band of followers. His disciples probably sent something up as well, because... Here they were, they had moved away from Jerusalem because it was getting pretty tense. And instead of going further into the wilderness, they come back towards Jerusalem. And Bethany is only about two miles outside of Jerusalem. In verse 2, so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table. Here's the setting. It's a feast. This is not sandwiches and chips, folks. This is a feast. They're having a dinner, it's reclining at the table. That's how they would eat. They would lay the food out and they would recline to be able to eat it. Martha was the hostess. Now, we remember Martha often from Luke chapter 10, where she was rebuked for Jesus, but she wasn't rebuked for being a hostess. She was rebuked for being anxious. So here she is again, and guess what she's doing? What she's gifted at. She's a hostess. She's taking care of things. This feast was in Jesus' honor. It was shortly after he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And you've got to think, when there's a significant event in your life or my life, it often takes some time to kind of process that. You ever notice that? It, you just don't just automatically pop up, oh, okay, that was good, let's move on. No, no, no. This was a man who had been dead, and Jesus came and raised him up out of the grave. So the people are probably still thinking, I, I, I need to rewind this one again. Does anybody have it on YouTube? I need to see this. I, I, I'm not quite sure what happened here. So they're still in the process of, of understanding this event. And that they, we know that from the passage, it's Mary, Martha, Lazarus, Jesus, the disciples, and quite possibly the owner of the home, Mark and Luke tell us, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew and Mark tell us that it's Simon the leper, and probably some others from Bethany. Here's... Verse 3, here's the incident that set everything off in one verse. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Mary is introduced into the narrative with no explanation. John has just finished chapter 11, with Lazarus' resurrection, so we know who she is. This is the same Mary that we find in Luke chapter 10 as well, Mary and Martha. This is the one where Martha complains because Mary is just sitting there instead of helping. 
And in John chapter 11, it's Mary who rushes out to meet Jesus after Lazarus had died. She seemed to have, I don't know what to call it, maybe a tender relationship toward Jesus. Uh, she sat at his feet and listened, recall, um, where, where at that time, mostly the rabbis would teach only men. She was there listening. She grieved deeply at her brother's passing. And notice something interesting in chapter 11. Both Martha and Mary make the same statement. Martha in verse 21 of chapter 11, Mary in verse 32 of chapter 11. If you had been here, speaking to Jesus, Lazarus would not have died. But notice how Jesus responds to each of those. Martha, he engages her in a conversation about the resurrection. Mary, he doesn't say anything. He begins weeping. There is a tender relationship that we can kind of see there that's coming through. And it was this Mary who takes a pint of ointment about the size of a soda can. And from Matthew and Mark, we know that it was in a sealed jar made of alabaster, which is stone. And as Jesus is reclining at the table, she proceeds to pour it out onto him, onto him all the way down to his feet and then begins sopping up the extra with her hair. John, writing about 50 years later, remembers the detail that the smell filled the whole room. Now, anointing is kind of lost on us. Okay, we're crossing cultures. We're crossing 2,000 years. We're crossing halfway around the world, so we're kind of like, huh? Why did she do that? Typically, we don't put oil in her hair. We take it out. Uh, so here, what is this? What's, what's, what does this have to do? Well, if you look through Scripture, it's actually not that uncommon of an event. It falls in some general categories. Anointing in the Old Testament was often attached to some religious event, such as anointing of a priest or a king. If you see in uh, Exodus chapter 40, verse 11, the objects that went into the tabernacle were anointed. And then the next verse, the priests were anointed. So it was a setting apart. That anointing of oil set them apart. That's one way that it was used. Oh, and and, uh, the kings were anointed. Samuel anointed both Saul and David. We'll also see that the, um, the dead were anointed in preparation for burial. Jesus' body was anointed before they put him in the tomb. Another way is medicinal. James in James 5.14 tells the elders to anoint the sick with oil. So it's, it's not that uncommon. In fact, oh, oh, and then there's a figurative sense, the Holy Spirit's anointing. In a figurative way, 1 John 2.27 So what's noted here, however, is something where it's more of an everyday cleanliness issue, where where we don't do that. We wash up, but they would anoint. There's no strict uh, similarity here. Maybe we could compare it to lotion, putting lotion on someone, um, oil you applied to your whole person, and on special occasions, you would include a few drops of nard as perfume. And if you did it to somebody else, it was meant to honor them. So this, what what she did, was pure nard. It wasn't oil mixed with nard. It was pure nard. It was no ordinary, over-the-counter oil of lay. Okay, it was something that was an import. 
It was one of those things where if you can't pronounce it, you probably shouldn't buy it. One of those ointments. That's how significant it was. Mary cracks the jar open, which now turns it into a single-use item, and apparently begins with his head down to his feet. Now imagine you're one of the disciples. Okay, you've come in from the town next to the wilderness, and here's a feast prepared. You ever done that? You ever come camping, whatever, you come in town, and it's like, ah, oh, food. So here they are just gorging themselves. This was given in Jesus' honor. Uh, but here's a feast prepared for them. And you're sitting there eating, and Mary's been by five times now. I'm sorry, Martha's been by five times now saying, you get enough? Did you get enough? Did you get enough? Yes, Martha, we had enough. It's good. You're sitting next to Lazarus saying, man, I can't believe you're here. I, I thought you were a goner, man. You're one of the disciples just enjoying this, and all of a sudden, unnoticed to everybody, what, what's that smell? And you look over, and there's Mary with her alabaster jar, and she's broken it open, and she's anointing Jesus with oil, and the smell fills the entire room. Wow. Now just imagine if you're Mary, and you're thinking, I, I want to honor Jesus in some way. This is significant. My brother was raised from the dead. I have this jar of ointment. I'll take it in there and anoint Jesus. It's, uh, it's meant to be honorable. So you slip into the room. They're all eating and having a good time, talking and laughing. You manage to evade Martha. Okay, She's going to look for you for something to do. And you slip up to Jesus. You break that open and you pour that out and begin to anoint Jesus. And all of a sudden, all this talking, everything stops because the odor is overwhelming. It smells good. It's a good odor. Wow. That moment of stunned silence. Now, it would have been an act of devotion if she had simply washed his feet with water. That's something servants normally do it, did. So that would have been an act of devotion. Not only that, the fact that she used nard in excess, the whole bottle, highlighted her devotion even more. And on top of that, her final expression of devotion was when she used her own hair to wipe up the excess and wash Jesus' feet. Jewish women at that time did not take down their hair. It was, it was kept up. And she undid her hair and wiped up his feet. And so there is a moment of stunned silence. Everybody looks at Jesus. And since he didn't say anything, the disciples did. They're good at that. I didn't know what to say. Jesus, you're supposed to say, but they didn't say anything. I, okay, we'll speak up. John calls out Judas as the one speaking up. Verses 4 and 5. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Judas is introduced into the narrative along with John's editorial comment. That's what's in the parentheses. In fact, John was the gospel writer who wrote the most about Judas. Have you ever noticed that? It was almost as if he took it very personally that this one of the twelve, okay, he was close to us. He was one of us. He betrayed Jesus. And John made note of that. He who was about to be betray him. See, Judas was all business, but there's more underneath. On the surface, it seemed logical, practical, even a good stewardship decision, right? But realize what he was really doing. He's trying to make points with Jesus, with the disciples, 
and probably the Jewish leaders, all at the expense of Mary. A denarius was about one day's wages. So you add that up. That's almost a year's salary. If we were to roughly translate that into today's terms, that's $30,000. That's some expensive ointment. This was an enormous amount of money for this rabbi and his group of followers. If this were taken to the temple treasury as alms, the Jewish leaders would certainly take notice. Plus, since Judas planned on taking his own percentage, as we see in the next verse, he could get a tidy sum as well. Verse 6, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. See, Jesus and his followers apparently had a common purse. Um, a pool of money they drew from, from for their own expenses. Judas was entrusted with the responsibility of holding the savings and tracking the expenditures. And here we have another one of John's editorial comments, verse 6. Remember, written about 50 years after the event. At that moment, no one suspected anything. He wasn't a traitor yet. So in that moment, it sounded good. In fact, both Matthew and Mark tell us the disciples agreed with him. But realize the impact of Judas' dishonesty. It hurt others. It was a pattern. You can see that from where he said he used to help. It was a continuing thing. And it had as its origin selfishness and greed. Sound familiar? We have that deceit in our own lives often. It hurts others. It becomes a pattern. And its origin is selfishness and greed. Well, following that moment of stunned silence and Judas' words, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Everyone looks back to Jesus. Now what? Mary probably looked down, feeling that stinging rebuke, reaches out, dabs some more drops of ointment. She meant well, but it wasn't taken that way. Would Jesus agree with them? Leave her alone. Verse 7, he jumps to her defense. Verse 7, Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. How do you suppose she felt first? from the harsh, critical words of the disciples after she had poured her heart out figuratively and emptied her bank account. She had been thinking, Jesus is here. What can I do to express my devotion to him? How can I communicate my deep love and appreciation for who he is and what he's done? He raised my brother from the dead. I know. I'll anoint him with expensive oil. And so she did. It was almost intuitively as if she knew that a week later his body would be prepared for burial. In fact, the text indicates this. Another translation uh, reads the end of verse this way. Jesus says, she did this in preparation for my burial. She took this huge risk. She was attacked, criticized by Jesus' followers, and then experienced huge relief when Jesus defended her. And then he goes on to say in verse 8, for the poor... You will always have with you, but you do not always have me. So Jesus is saying, here's why. You'll always have the poor, but you won't always have me. 
Now, this statement has confused someone. We need to trace it back and find out where it came from. could be that he's quoting from Deuteronomy 15.11. This is Moses speaking to the people of Israel before they enter the land, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Now, some have used this as an excuse, saying, ha, see, there will always be poor people around. No, because if you look earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 15, you'll find these words, but there will be no poor among you. For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, if only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. Is this a contradiction? It sure sounds like it. No, it isn't. It's a statement of fact. God instructs the people of Israel to take care of the poor, but he acknowledges the fact that they're human and they're sinful. And because of that, because of their failure, there will always be poor in the land. What are we to make of this? It's easy to identify Judas as the villain and Mary as the one Jesus commended in the end. Although, quite honestly, many of us would have been just as indignant as Judas and the disciples, with the extravagant use of anointing oil, think of what you can do with $30,000. If we hadn't said anything, we probably would have been there thinking it. Well, this story helps to sort out our motives, and specifically our motives for worship. True, comprehensive worship, it includes good stewardship. True, comprehensive worship includes hospitality, like Martha was giving. But how can we offer sacrificial worship to God with pure motives? You know, I think before we consider that, we have to ask a deeper and more significant question. Do I even care? This only applies to me showing up on Sunday mornings and singing worship songs, right? No. Worship is 24-7. And it begins with understanding that there is a God who is holy. And my best efforts at being good cannot possibly meet his standards of holiness. And God knows that. He sees our rebellious hearts just as he saw Mary's heart and he saw Judah's heart. And you know what? He still loved both. He still loves you. He still loves me in spite of seeing that. That's a loving God. That's the God that we worship. And the first step is us coming to that realization and saying, there's a holy God. My good things will never measure up to him. I'm a sinful, rebellious person. I need him. And then coming to him and saying, okay, I trust the only perfect being there ever was, and that's Jesus. I trust him as a sacrifice for my sins. And because of that, coming to him like that, I now cross over from death into life. I now have a relationship with God. That's salvation. And too often we just kind of zoom on by that thinking, oh yeah, whatever that was, I did that, I remember that. No, 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 no. That's the beginning. That's the realization. In fact, that's one of those Memorial Day things that should be with us every single day understanding and realizing that there's no possible way that we could have a relationship with God 
except for Jesus. And I think acknowledging that each day, that's what daily worship is. Not going to him with uh, this. We make, we're good at those lists, right? Uh, a laundry list. Here are all the things, God, that I need you to fix and I need you to fix them today. Here you go. Now, stepping back, putting that aside, and first saying, there is a God. There's a God who loves me. He's holy. But he's made it possible for me to access his throne because of Jesus. That's the beginning of worship. That's God pleading, as Jesus did in Matthew, Come unto me, all who are heavily burdened, and I will give you rest for your soul. If, then, we are in a place where we recognize the Almighty God as the only one to be worshipped, how do we do that? Well, we begin to find some of the answers in this story in John chapter 12. Look at Mary's act. Look at Mary's act, Judas' statement, and Jesus' response. Mary didn't just say, I'm a devoted follower of Christ. She demonstrated it through worship with a pure motive and worship that involved sacrifice. She had to release something that was valuable to her. What do we hold on to? What's valuable to us? Relationships? Material comfort? Your health or the health of a loved one? Pure worship is breaking that jar and relinquishing control over to God. He knows what to do with it. There's nothing wrong with hosting events or giving to the poor. Hospitality and generosity, good things. But those acts and others, if they're to be true worship, they involve sacrifice and must be done with pure motives. And look at Judah's statement. Sounds good. Probably sounded good to the disciples in the moment. But there was an emptiness to it that only Jesus knew at that time. And Jesus was not rebuking Judas and the disciples for their practicality or their stewardship. He was rebuking them for their harsh condemnation of Mary, their self-righteousness, failing to recognize her act was greater than their alternative of helping the poor because it was done with the right motive. It was why she did it. If our words and actions are offered up as worship to God, then why we do these things can make the difference between acceptable and unacceptable worship. It's a heavy thought. Let me read that again. If our words and actions are offered up as worship to God, then why we do these things can make the difference between acceptable and unacceptable worship. And look at Jesus' response. Leave her alone. Matthew and Mark both record Jesus' statement as saying that Mary... <coughs> Mary had done a beautiful thing. He uses that word beautiful in there. 26, uh, Matthew 26.10 Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And we do that. We still remember it. He affirmed her extravagance, and he did it in front of her critics. 
He says, there'll be plenty of opportunity to help the poor. They'll always be around, unfortunately, because of the sinful world we live in. But you won't always have me. In fact, I'll be gone a short time from now. That's what he's saying. Jesus affirmed Mary because he saw her motives were pure, and he recognized that her worship took risk and sacrifice. That's the kind of worship he's looking for from us. Judas' so-called worship, the call to good... Uh, the call to good stewardship, came up short in part because of his selfish motive, but also because it involved neither risk nor sacrifice. (laughs) We could say to him, Judas, if you're so devoted to helping the poor, pull 300 denarii out of your own pocket and give it away. He was good at giving somebody else's away, wasn't he? Not his own. We do that too, don't we? We're all for helping others as a form of worship, as long as it doesn't cause us too much discomfort. This is good. It's good to buy only fair trade coffee or fair wage clothing because it helps the poor people in some country I couldn't even find on a map, but how about going there? Or is that too extravagant? How about taking the risk of helping someone in your sphere of influence who is in deep and serious need? A neighbor, a coworker, a stranger... We can think of a thousand reasons why not. They'll become dependent. I won't have enough left over myself. It's not use of, wise use of my resources. What is worship then? It's not only serving others, but it's also worshiping God by serving Him. We're all for serving in the church with whatever time we have left over during the week, if we have any. Do you think, do we think that God is really looking for our leftovers? Mary didn't go poor and use this ointment on someone else and say, oh, there's two drops left. I think I'll give that to Jesus. She took the whole jar. What God wants from us in our worship is everything. He doesn't want the leftovers. It's all of us. In our service to God, in whatever form it might be, if it is truly extravagant worship from a pure heart, then the focus must be on Him and him alone. That's one thing I'm, I'm glad as we sing, as, as Rick has been leading us in these worship songs today, the focus is so much on him. Too often we get distracted. And as, as, as Benny prayed this morning beforehand, prayed about focus because we do, we get so much distracted by so many things out there. There was like, where's our worship? There's so many things going on in our lives, and I know that. I experience that as well. But God wants our undivided attention. He wants our worship. And he wants it in the form of serving in some cases. It, it's, it's interesting to notice that in this verse, in these few verses, the poor are mentioned three times. Whenever something like that comes up, you've got to notice something like that. It's mentioned three times. I think we need to note that because that's a form of worshiping God is by caring for the poor. I know that some would loudly proclaim a version of social justice that has as its focus the poor versus the oppressor and little or nothing about meeting those needs as a form of worshiping God. Big difference. Serving God as a form of extravagant worship means seeking to help the poor not as a means to eradicate poverty, but as a way to honor God. If you look what Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 25, he said, Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? This is uh, 25, 38. 
And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of these, the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. The focus is not on the poor, it's on God. I think somehow well-meaning Christians have attempted to do God's job for him, serving the poor, seeking justice as an end in itself, rather than a means to end this to an end. They seem to think it's their job to bring about God's justice on earth. They can't. Only God can do that. He uses human agents to accomplish his will. But our job is to worship. Period. I know that Micah 6, 6 through 8 is a familiar passage, but it should be a very personal challenge, not something you use to beat other people up with. What, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly? with your God. That's worship. So the question we have to ask ourselves, how can I do this? How can I be a witness by demonstrating extravagant worship in my devotion to the Lord? I don't have $30,000 to go out and buy something. I don't even have a thousand. Worship, extravagant worship, doesn't only mean money. Extravagant worship can be found in our daily living. It's whether or not we're looking for it and whether or not we're receptive to God's Holy Spirit as he teaches us. It might mean a mom home with her young children, one of them sick all day. Some of you can relate to that. Spends the whole day holding a distraught and cranky toddler and praise the Lord and said... I could have gotten so much done for you today, Lord, if he wouldn't have been sick. (laughs) You know what? Your extravagant worship was spending that day with that young one. And with the motive of investing that time and energy to serve and glorify God in every way. That's extravagant. Don't say you don't have anything. We all do. I think one of the ways we can begin that is by opening with a question each day, how can I worship you today, Lord, with extravagance? Maybe it means you at work. Maybe you're the one that all of the uh, work load falls onto on your job. Maybe God wants you to put that quality time and effort into seeking the project, into, into finishing the project the boss wants done by the end of the day, even though your coworkers could care less. Or you might find yourself listening to a co-worker's heartfelt pain from a broken relationship at home and then do it in a caring way with a view and a motive of glorifying God. That's extravagant worship. It can be in our everyday. I think we need to give from what has been given us. Don't try to match the $30,000 ointment. Find out what it is that you can offer God. Not the leftovers, but the best. Now, some might be listening to this and come away with a question, hmm, so how can I change my worship? 
Wrong question. Should be, how can God change me so that my worship becomes extravagant? The danger is in concentrating on the worship. Instead, ask God to purify my motives. Drawing closer to him, that's what he wants. That's worship. And ask him, ask him what he would like you to sacrifice. Be ready for an answer. God is not silent. He will answer. Be prepared for that. But when he does answer, then we have the opportunity to become engaged in the process of being obedient to his voice. Then our worship becomes extravagant. Would you bow in prayer with me this morning? Our God and Father in heaven, we desire that our worship before you is indeed extravagant. We thank you for the privilege of even being able to come into your most holy presence. We do not take that for granted. We acknowledge our need for you. We acknowledge our need for sacrifice. We look at Mary and see her example, Father, and we're encouraged and challenged in seeing that her motive was pure and her sacrifice was great and her worship was brought before you. It's our desire to do the same. Wherever you call us, whatever you ask us to do, we're here. We thank you. Our focus, our God, is on you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If for some reason there's something that is on your heart,